The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to KCI 88.9 FM. Irvine, Irvine, Irvine. Friend us on Facebook at KUCI FM and Twitter at KUCI FM. KUCI. Talk, music, and more. Hi there, you're listening to the Get the Funk Out Show. I'm your host, Janine. And isn't that the cutest little social ID we have here at KUCI? I have to brag, that's my daughter on there. And I uh, see I start them very young, and we have a lot of fun. We do all kinds of different things here at KUCI to promote the station. And uh, I love playing that from time to time. Unfortunately, she's in school right now, can't listen to it, but I do like to play it when she can tune in. And so... Welcome to Monday Morning. This is the beginning of our new schedule here at KUCI, and I'll be here every Monday for the next several months hosting Get the Funk Out. And if you're new to the show, this show is all about sharing inspiring stories of people that have you know, gone through crazy things, uh, ups and downs of this crazy roller coaster ride called life. And joining us on this new schedule, the start of this week, January 9th, is Robert Evans. He's a celeb photographer, very, very accomplished. And I met him at TEDx recently, and he's going to join us in just a few moments and talk about his whole backstory. My pleasure to welcome to this week's show, Robert Evans. Hey, Robert, how are you? Good morning. How are you? Great. Great. Thanks for calling into the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I was very uh, inspired by your whole story. I met you at TEDx uh, a couple months ago, and I wanted to find out, you know, first of all, have you, is that your first time speaking at a TEDx mm-hmm. event? Yeah, that was my first TED Talk. I uh, speak and educate photographers, but... Um, that was like, I mean, I know it was only 15 minutes, but like, I I was more nervous about doing that than speaking to a room of 500 people. (laughs) Well, I can understand why, but you know what you, when it comes from the heart, you you didn't seem nervous. You really didn't. Yeah. I mean, I I went, you know, I I knew what I was going to say and, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've done it. I've been in front of people before. I actually enjoy the, the, the art of talking or, or getting up there and doing that, you know, but it was just a little different. 
than sure. what I'm more used to. Well, you got everybody staring you down, and <laughs> it's not really the most <laughs> natural of situations. But you're, I was wondering if you would be interested in sharing your whole story. That was very interesting how you got into photography, and you, you experienced some serious loss as a child. Yeah, so as a small, i just kind of recap a little bit of what the TED Talk was like. Of course, the best way to see it is go watch the TED Talk. But um, So as a small child, um, about uh, 11 months old, I lost my mother uh, in a plane crash. Oh. So I really never really knew her. It was a small plane. Mm-hmm. Um, she had... Excuse me. She had gone flying with a friend, and uh, it, it was foggy. And I, I guess uh, this person wasn't, you know, didn't know how to deal with that, and they ended up uh, crashing into the San Bernardino Mountains. Awesome. Uh, so I never really knew her. Um, and then, uh, you know, of course, my dad had to take over, and uh, I was raised by him. Um, I was born here in Santa Monica in Southern California, and then at four, uh, we moved. Uh, to Atlanta, Georgia, for my father's work, and I lived there uh, until I was about eight year old. Eight years old when he passed away. Um, excuse me one second. He, how old? Excuse me one second. How old was your mom when she died? Um, twenties. Yeah, late. I think late twenties. Okay. Um, and then my dad was roughly about thirty four, thirty five, um, and he basically had. Uh, he had lupus at the time, which they didn't know much about. You know, it was a wow. more, more of a female disease then. In 1976 right. was the year he died. And, uh, but he also had like a kidney infection, and, and they were treating him with steroids for that, and steroids cut your immunities down. So basically he got sicker because of the lack of immunities. He got a common cold, which turned into pneumonia. So he died from pneumonia, oh. but he did have some other complications going on. So when he died, um, my father's sister, um, who still lived out here in Southern California, Mm -hmm. uh, came to Atlanta and took care of me, uh, you know, while he was sick. And then once he passed and then uh, she basically uh, said, all right, well, you're coming home with me and packed up what little we could in the small little U-Haul van and uh, drove back to California. Did and, you, excuse uh, me, did you feel close to her? Were you close to her pretty much? Or yeah, no? she okay. had helped uh, raise me uh, once my mother passed. You know, like okay. my dad and her both lived, you know, here in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I did know her and know who she was. I mean, at eight years old, it's kind of a lot to go on and, I think you're not knowing, right. you know, what's happening, and you just kind of, like, follow the lead. Right. Um, but, you know, I knew she loved me and cared, and so, you know, it just seemed like the natural thing to do. And mm-hmm. um, so we came out to Southern California, and, you know, basically uh, I've been here ever since, and uh, my life just kind of grew forward from there. Um, about 16 years old, you know, I would say it was kind of a – a turning point in my life in that uh, I started practicing Buddhism. Oh. Uh, she was Buddhist and uh, Diane, my aunt, and uh, she had actually started about one month before my mother had passed. And <clears throat> I kind of, to make a long story short, was getting into a little bit of trouble 
and she and she would ground me and she, she would say okay if you're not going to listen to me then you have to go everywhere with me and so so I started going with her to these Buddhist meetings in people's homes and I had been around it and I knew what it was uh, but I was never really interested in being religious myself mm-hmm. um, and so I started going to these meetings with her and people would get up and give their experience about you know Buddhism and chanting and I was a little bit intrigued, yet at the same time, at 16, being a little obstinate, I didn't, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I didn't want her, this, my aunt, to have the satisfaction of saying, you know, I told you so, or sure. it was good for you, you know, that type of thing. Right. <clears throat> but as I continued to go, you know, what I really noticed was there was all sorts of many different types of people. They all really seemed to be truly, genuinely happy. And, you know, they said by, you know, chanting these words, nam myoho renge kyo they would get things, you know. And so at 16, I sort of... Uh, glommed on to the material aspect of it. What does that mean, uh, I mean exactly? You Glom. can chant, what does that mean? Yeah, what does Basically, it mean? the literal translation of Nam Myoho Renge Kyo is uh, the devotion to the mystic law of cause and effect through sound or vibration. So, um, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo is sort of like a law of the universe, whether you believe it or not, it still exists just as gravity does. So, you cannot believe gravity, but if you, you know, walk off your roof, you're going to hit the ground. Okay. And when you chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, you sort of bring out and tap into that sort of universal life force or rhythm, mm-hmm. and you can change absolutely anything that you want, and whether it's spiritual, material, or physical things. Mm-hmm. So again, at 16, I was sort of 16, and I was gravitating <laughs> towards the material things. Yeah. And so I'd like I, a one of the first things, <laughs> one of the first things I started chanting for was a job. And it was real basic. Like the thing that I liked about it is people would ask questions at meetings like, well, I believe in God. Do I have to give up that belief? And the answer was no. You just sort of have to add this to your life. Mm-hmm. And it's your choice whether you want to give that belief up or not. And so there was people from different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds, and they, but they all seemed to be, you know, embracing this and truly doing it and seem very happy and getting benefit from doing it. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, there was this, you know, part of me like, I'm going to try this to prove to my aunt that it doesn't work. But at the same time, I had hope or expectations that it did. Okay. And the other thing that I really liked about it was that, uh, you know, they said, you don't have to believe it. You just have to do it. And so I was like, okay, well, I definitely can deal with that. So it was almost like a science experiment. So they suggested, you know, in the beginning that you, um, you know, maybe try to chant maybe 15 to 30 minutes a day, you know, chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, mm-hmm. and make a list of the things that you want to see change in your life, regardless of what that is, regardless of how detailed it was. So still being in high school, um, I wanted a job that I could work at on the weekends. I really wanted to you know, drive and have a car and have my freedom. Uh, so I started chanting on my list, which I didn't tell anybody about. You know, I just made my own list and I started trying this on my own. I was following the formula. Mm-hmm. And uh, about two weeks into it, uh, I was talking with this woman at the end of a meeting, actually, and who I hadn't met before. And I think I'd seen her there one other time and we were just chatting and she said to me, you know, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I go to high school. And she's like, do you have a job? And I said, no. She said, do you want one? Just like out of the blue what? like that. And I said, <clears throat> I said, really? And, uh, and so, uh, one of the things that I was chanting for, I mean, part of that whole job was I wanted a job that I could work on the weekends that I could make $6 an hour under the table and that I didn't have to go look for that it would find me. 
because huh. I was kind of like, nobody likes rejection. So I didn't want to be told no. And, sure. you know, $6 an hour to me at that time was twice what minimum wage was. And if any of my friends were working or doing jobs, they were making three twenty-five an hour at fast food. And I refused to do fast food. And so when she said this to me, do you want a job? And I was like, sure. And she said, well, my husband puts in linoleum and tile floors, uh, on the weekends and uh, his helper just quit. You know, you could probably, this was a Friday night, you probably could start tomorrow and he'd pay you $6 an hour under the table. Okay. And so like right then I was like, <laughs> whoa, you know, I was like, that's exactly like what I wanted. It came to me. It was the amount of money oh. that I wanted. And, and so that was the one, you know, they say like you get a lot of those benefits in the beginning of, you know, like, you know, and, and of course, you're natural if you're a skeptic with a think, well, that's a coincidence. But the coincidence is basically kept happening. And so, you know, here I am, I forget, 27, 28 years later, still practicing this Buddhism and chanting Nam Myoho Kyo. And I mean, I would say it's really, really changed my life uh, for the better. I mean, it's just a very positive, the people are positive. Um, you know, I've created fortune by doing so. And, and I just really enjoy it. And it's a, it's a daily practice that I do twice a day in the morning and the evening. And, uh, but just like anything, it's still, it's, it's easy to start. It's difficult to continue as you can imagine, sure. you know, having to <clears throat> chant twice a day. Um, but I mean, and, and you can be human and, you know, there's days that I miss and it's not like you're going to hit by lightning if you don't, it's just, Buddhism is really great. It's, it's just common sense if you want to sum it up in a nutshell. And it's, it's, you know, based on cause and effect and karma. So much like uh, running on a treadmill, if you didn't run on the treadmill one day, you know, it's not the end of the world. You're not going to get fat overnight. You know, it's, you know, you just got to reconfirm your conviction and, and go back to it and, you know, and, and refresh your determination and move forward. What's nice is I hear you saying it. You're not hard on yourself. You're, you know, you're not at all. Yeah. I think that's what's great about there's no guilt in Buddhism, I which like I that. think, you know, in a lot yeah. of other religions there are. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, probably created for many different reasons, but that's what I really like about this. I mean, it's cause and effect. You don't, you know, I am pretty good about it and, and I don't even really honestly see it as a religion, but I'm probably quote unquote more religious than most people being that I, you know, chant twice a day. I also recite, you know, a chapter and a half of the sutra that the Buddhism is based on. It takes about five, 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do that in the morning and the evening and, you know, chanting Nam Myoho Kyo is sort of like putting gasoline in, in your car and, you know, for the day. And so you can put into it what you want to get out of it. Like you know, that. again, if you use the workout analogy, you could run on the treadmill for 10 minutes or you could run on the treadmill for 45 minutes a day. And which one are you going to see more results from? Can you imagine your life without that if you'd never started doing that? You know, I really can't. Um, you know, not that I'm a fanatic and, and any of that. It just It's really just made such a great impression in my life. And the people, you know, like, and that's the thing with Buddhism, too, is they don't, they don't talk about, like, they go out and, you know, set an example, be an example, so that people want to emulate you. You know, it's not, uh, there's no commercials on TV about being Buddhist, or it's, you know, it's all passed one person to the next person, really through actual proof. And, you know, and one person, there was a mom at my kid's school this morning, and I didn't even know, you know, I've only been in Orange County for about two and a half years now. Mm-hmm. And somebody knew that I was Buddhist. And, you know, she's actually been asking me for a while, but she came up to me this morning and said, you know, I'm really ready. I really, you know, want to go to a meeting, you know, will you let me know when the next one is? And I said, sure. You know, so mm-hmm. it's not like I'm after her every day and shoving it down her throat and, you know, right. 
but there was something, I guess, about me or somehow that she found me and she's like, you know, interested in going and I'm happy. I mean, it's like the, the, I mean, it's bigger than this, but it's like going to a really great movie that you have to just tell, you have to go see this. You have to go see this. You have to go see this. I mean, the feeling inside, but at the same time, you know, it has to be, uh, altruistic and, and real and compassionate and, and not, you know, like, you know, we want people to be, you know, I want other people to be happy and experience the feeling that I feel. Sure, sure. Right. Now you're not just going because they're going for the materialistic point of the whole thing. Right. And yeah. of course, you know, I said I started chanting for materialistic things. And of course, you grow. And, you know, a lot of what I chant about today is other people's happiness. And of course, I have, you know, it's very goal oriented. And I have my own goals and the things that I want to accomplish. And I chant about those. But I chant about my kids' happiness, my family, my wife, you know, my friends, people I don't know, you mm-hmm. know, that type of thing. You know, of course, you can't help but, you know, see some of the things that go on in the world and <clears throat> people that suffer and, you know, even just chanting for those people and their happiness, you know, That's going nice. through what they're going through. That's nice. Would you say that helped you as a 16-year-old deal with such loss at a young age? I definitely think so. I mean, Going back to my, you know, I didn't know my mother, and with my father dying at eight years old, I've kind of always said that, well, if he was going to pass away and this was something that I was going to have to experience in my life, you know, better eight than 30, Mm -hmm. um, in that, you know, I would have just had a longer time um, to be closer to him, and it probably would have been harder. I mean, of course, death is never easy. Um, But definitely, like, you know, I think, you know, Buddhism talks about death as being just, you know, birth, aging, and death as, you know, part of life. It's the cycle of life. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't obviously still, as human beings, make it any easier on us right. when someone dies. But, you know, to sort of understand that it's that it's part of life and it's going to happen, um, you know, definitely has made it. But beyond that, um, I just think the, the positive influence of it and, and you know, is definitely... I mean, I don't think I would be where I am today uh, without the assist, you know, and, or having that in my life. You know, I don't completely credit, you know, I do have a problem sometimes when people with religions credit everything towards, you know, their belief mm-hmm. 100%. I think it's, you know, one doesn't beget the other, you know, action sure. and actual proof. You know, it's you too. You have to give yourself some credit. And I've, I've worked hard and, uh, you know, made things happen in my life. But definitely Buddhism has really, like, it's kind of when you do chant and certain times you get things, it's very mystical. It's not magic, but you're like, wow. I mean, we could do a whole show on that, and I don't want to take up the time to do that. But um, you're just like, wow. It's just, it's very, you know, spiritual, mystical, magical, whatever you want to call it. You know, like I've chanted for things and got these amazing benefits and just how it's all unfolded. And it puts you in rhythm with the universe. It really does. That's great. By the way, for those just tuning in, you're listening to Get the Funk Out Show. I'm your host, Janine. We're talking with celebrity photographer Robert Evans. I want to find out how you got into photography at what age and how that whole thing started. So we'll write about the same time at 16 was, you know, the time I started practicing Buddhism was kind of the time that I decided that I really liked photography. I started taking it um, actually in a junior high in my last year of junior high. I had I was in some you know, gifted classes. So I had credits from these gifted classes um, and they didn't know what to do with us. So uh, they created this like photography class and put a bunch of us in this photography class. 
And so that's when I really started, you know, getting into it. You know, like we did your basic things, like making pinhole cameras out of Quaker oatmeal, you know, boxes (laughs) and painting them black and exposing a piece of paper and, you know, just getting into the dark room and those type of things. And so really, uh, um, my father actually, I knew was into photography. He had uh, quite a little bit of camera equipment and um, pictures around the home. And so, I mean, there was that influence there. Uh, but really, I think it was, you know, a teacher, thank you to all the teachers out there, nice. that, um, you know, got my interest in it. And um, I remember her name, her name was Mrs. Wallace. And, you know, she was very passionate about photography herself. And uh, so that's where it kind of began. So when I when I went up into high school, you know, I was like, for sure, I, I want a photography class. And I signed up, you know, for the photography class. And then ended up in like 11th and 12th grade having two periods of photography, one that I took and one that I helped out in. You know, you get a TA credit, teacher's assistant. And uh, so I did that and, you know, really helped some of the other kids. You know, there were some that you really helped that you saw, like really enjoyed it. And there was, you know, (laughs) some girls that I helped pass photography because they had no (laughs) idea what they were doing. Um, But still, I look back on those memories and, you know, and, and I laugh about it and, so I got out of high school and uh, I went to a junior college for a while. And ironically, my high school teacher uh, taught at the junior college. And so I thought, oh, this is great, you know, comfort and some familiarity. And I'm going to go take his photography class. And when I did and I got there, um, I was a little disappointed in the fact that um, his assignments and everything in college were basically the same thing that we did in high school with a little maybe twist to them. Oh, that's not challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, you know, I think sometimes we want to gravitate to what's comfortable, but um, that's one thing that's, you know, I've always found through Buddhism too, is life has a way of, you know, kicking you in the backside mm-hmm. and uh, making you not be comfortable. And I really sort of like saw that and I was like, okay. I, and I, you know, I took his class for the one semester and then stopped and I got out of photography for a little while and um, basically, I moved out of the home when I was 19, and so school and working full-time, you know, one of them had to go. Of course, school was the first one to go, but I was strict with myself, and I said, you know, after, after, uh, you know, I, sorry, I, right. I just need to decide what I want to do with my life. So, you know, at 19, 20 years old, I was like, you don't want to wake up one day and be 30 and go, wow, I really need a career. So I sure. kind of was talking to myself and I said, well, what do you, what do you want to do? What do you like? And photography is kind of what I kept falling back on, although I had been away from it for about a year away from it, meaning that I hadn't, you know, printed in a dark room. I hadn't taken that many photos. I was kind of doing, I sold insurance for a while and I hated that. And so when I decided that's what I wanted to do, um, the first thing that I wanted to do was learn color photography because I expected to learn that in college and they weren't teaching that even at that level or where I went. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got a job um, at a color lab in Hollywood. It was a very small lab. Um, and, you know, but that's what I wanted to do. So I got back into photography. Um, I printed other people's pictures and I made copy negatives and I helped people at the counter and I learned to print color a little bit. Um, you know, then it was done a little bit differently than it is now, but and did you feel like this was uh, really your passion? Like, okay, this is... Yeah, I'm gonna I did. I really, really enjoyed the aspect of it. I was mm-hmm. happy that I was kind of learning color photography and how to print a little bit. Um, but I did quickly after, you know, 
really less than about a year. I worked there just about a year. I said, I, you know, I don't want to process other people's photos. I want to take pictures. Nice. And so I had another friend who I knew who actually was, who chanted and, and she worked in a photography studio. Uh, it was a big portrait slash wedding studio. And uh, the job happened to be uh, opening in the wedding department. And at 19, 20 years old, you don't want to be a wedding photographer. I certainly mm-hmm. didn't. I didn't picture that's what I wanted to do. Sure. Wedding photography, you know, back in, you know, 1988 was boring. You know, it was, you know, all posed, yes. all, you know, just nothing really creative about it. But I didn't care. You know, I, I think I had the attitude, like, I'll do whatever and, and I'll, I'll do my best. And, you know, like, just like I learned from the color lab, you know, okay. I got experience. And wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, so I made the decision it was time to move on. And so I just wanted the job at the photography studio, so I took it, and it happened to be in the wedding department. So I was sorting negatives and helping put together wedding albums and that type of thing. And after a while uh, of being there, they asked me, do you want to go out with a photographer on the weekends and learn to shoot weddings? And so I said, okay, you know, you're not going to get paid for this, but I made actually a pretty decent wage during the week at that time again, a lot more than my friends were making. So I was like, I could afford to do it. So I gave up my time on the weekends and I went out, you know, weekend after weekend with the photographer. And and basically, you know, the first thing you just sort of are watching. And at the time we shot all medium format Hasselblad cameras and I changed film and the film backs and handy them lenses and that Mm -hmm. type of thing. And then little by little, like at the reception, he would hand me the camera and he'd be like, all right, go shoot some dance shots and go take pictures of of those couples dancing. Nice. I remember when I first did that, I was actually terrified because he's like, you know, when a couple slow dances, they're holding hands. And he's like, what you do is you walk up and you touch them on the hand and then you back up five feet, you know, but you touch them on the hand and say, hey, you guys look over here for a photo. And then, you know, touch their hands back away. And, and I didn't really want to engage them. You know, I was right. like, that petrified me. You know, I was like, what? They're dancing. I don't want to disturb them. Sure. You have to do it. And so, you know, it's like little by little, even as simple as that, like overcoming your fears and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing that. And so I started doing that. And then basically after doing that for a while, they, they, they would start like, okay, well, here's a birthday party, go shoot this birthday party. And, and, uh, so anyway, I, that was sort of my entry into the wedding business. And I ended up working for three different studios. Uh, I shot my first very wedding on my own for that first studio in January of 1989, mm-hmm. and then ended up working for three different studios. Uh, the last one that I worked at, um, I ran the wedding department for two studios. Uh, the owner had a studio in Sherman Oaks in the San Fernando Valley and one out in Palmdale. And, you know, so one day, a Saturday, I could be in Palmdale shooting a wedding. And on Sunday, I could be in Beverly Hills shooting a wedding. And it was quite a contrast. Um, and I hated going to Palmdale. I mean, first of all, it was an hour drive. It was out in the middle of the desert. Anybody that knows where Palmdale is, it's sure. sorry, people, if you're in Palmdale listening to this, but I didn't like your city. <laughs> I didn't like going out there. But As my phones um, light up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and um, But one thing that, that I, again, you look back on life and you can, you know, you don't know why you're going through certain things and you can realize it. But one thing that I learned that taught me, especially working out on Palmtail, is that I had to make something out of nothing. I'm the type of person that when I photograph something, and well, especially a wedding, I, I can't just go out there and follow the formula. I have to please myself. And a lot of what I do when I shoot is making myself happy, getting myself excited, 
And I know if I please myself, I can please my client. That's great. But when I was in Palmdale, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, backdrops and things to work with. So I had to get really creative. I mean, I could have just put them up against a boring, you know, stucco wall and taken mm-hmm. photos of them, and but I couldn't do that. So one of the things I started doing was doing like some of their family portraits at the end of the aisle and using the depth of the church, you know, oh. going out of focus in the background with a little light and things back there to, to make it interesting and, you know, sometimes available light coming through the front doors. And it really created some, you know, beautiful portraits in the setting that I had to work with when I had nothing to work with, beautiful. as opposed to, you know, that next Sunday I could be at the Beverly Hills Hotel and have, you know, amazing, you know, uh, landscape and architecture and those things to work with. So it really taught me how to see things differently, I think, which definitely, uh, you know, it comes across in my work today. Now, excuse me one second. We're going to take a quick break because I want you to save yep. the juicy stuff about how you got into becoming a celebrity photographer af- after the break. Uh, we're talking with Robert Evans, and if you want to visit his website, it's robertevans.com, and you're listening to Get the Funk Out. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming online at KUCI.org. As the only public radio station in Orange County, KUCI has been broadcasting underground music and talk on the University of California Irvine campus since 1969. Remember to like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The URLs are facebook.com slash KUCIFM and twitter.com slash KUCIFM. Happy listening. Hi there, my name's Janine. You're listening to Get the Funk Out, and we are back with celebrity photographer Robert Evans. So, Robert, tell me uh, where things went after you got into color photography. So, basically, uh, leaving off where we did uh, after working for the three studios, mm-hmm. um, it was shortly after the uh, earthquake, the Northridge earthquake in January of 94, that I started my own business. I mean, my corporate startup date is January of 94. I basically decided, uh, basically the two studios, you know, when I worked the one in Palmdale, the one in Sherman Oaks, the one in Sherman Oaks was destroyed in the earthquake. It was in the Sherman Oaks gallery. And so he had to close that one. And basically the owner said, well, you can come out and, you know, work in Palmdale. And I was like, nope. And uh, so I just took a leap of faith and uh, sort of said, I'm going to do this on my own. And I borrowed, um, I think about $25,000, $30,000 from a, a really good friend of mine, sort of like a second father to me, who sort of always followed my career. Nice. And I actually initially went to him for $5,000 to be partners with someone else. And he's like, do you need them as a partner? And I said, no. And he said, well, I'll be your silent partner. Here's the money. You know, start your business. So um, I was fortunate enough to have him in my life. And uh, so I did. And I started my business in January of 94. And uh, just went forward from there. Within about two, I think about two and a half years, I paid the loan completely back. Uh, I shared my office with a, a videographer friend of mine at the time. And so we kind of, it was it was a nice, uh, you know, roommate sort of situation where sure. we had one office. He had his offices, I had mine, but we shared like a, a meeting room where we met with brides. And uh, we helped each other out and with referrals. Nice. Uh, and that was in Encino, and I was in Encino for about seven years. Um, and then uh, I moved to my studio, to Studio City, um, in about 2000. Um, 
Ben, my partner, the video person, he wanted to buy a building, so he bought a building, and we moved into the, this building in Studio City, gutted it, and rebuilt it around both of our businesses. Um, but as far as the celebrity stuff, I mean, the very first celebrity wedding that I did um, was around 92, 93. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was at the uh, last studio that I worked for before I started my business. And I shot uh, the bass player Duff McKeegan's wedding from Guns N' Roses. Cool. And I happened to be a huge Guns N' Roses fan <laughs> at the time. I mean, I still like them, but, you know, at that age, I was a little more influenced by them, and I'd been to several of their concerts. So uh, I mentioned that the studio was in the Sherman Oaks Galleria, and his fiance wandered in there, saw my work, um, and said, you know, we're getting married. It was in July. And, you know, would I want to do it? And she was talking with a friend of hers, and uh, she just said, my fiance is a musician, and, of course, I didn't think anything about it. And right. then she was talking, and she's like, yeah, Dust's going to like this, too. And I heard those four letters or whatever it is. And I was like, what? You know, like I, I was like excited, but I was like, okay, yeah. well, it can't be the same. Sure. And the service you're like, was. oh, okay. <laughs> and so anyway, that was the first one that I did. But, but you have to remember that was back, you know, it's funny people think about, but that was back before the internet mm-hmm. or the internet was around then, but it wasn't, you know, of course what it is today. Right. Um, and so, you know, I just did it and I was excited about doing it. Um, and then fast forward, I guess, to 2000, um, and that's when uh, I shot the wedding of in July of 2000, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. But wait a minute, you got to tell the story, because when you told it at TEDx, <laughs> it was so cute. Can you talk about how yeah, you didn't yeah, know? Yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'll just like, how I got the wedding, everybody wants to know that question, so I'll address that. Um, okay. Basically, I had made friends with a florist. Um, it's a long and short of it that, you know, I sent him photographs of a job that we had previously done of his flowers and he called me up and was very appreciative and he said, Robert, not only are these the nicest detailed photos any photographers ever sent me, but I didn't ask you for them. Uh-huh. And so from that point on, you know, I had made a friend and he had sent me other jobs and nice. anyway, he had, he was the florist that was hired to do um, Brad and Jen's wedding and was working with the planner and he knew that they were looking for a photographer and so he said, I know a really great photographer. And I said, fine, have him submit his work. I mean, basically, people were submitting their work sort of like a like an actor would do in an audition. Sure. And I didn't know who it was for and what it was for. <laughs> um, the planner had told me that it was a shell corporate oil party and that the <laughs> the client would like to see, you know, black and white. They really like black and white work. And I was like, whoa, I don't really have any corporate black and white pictures. I said, all my good black and white work is either, you know, wedding work or through engagement, you know, sittings from couples. And he mm-hmm. was like, that'll do, submit it. Okay. Anyway, so I submitted, my, I submitted my work and they said, all right, they liked your work, you got the job. And of course, I didn't think, in, I kind of thought something was up, but it just all seemed kind of strange. And then I knew when it was and I knew where it was. I knew it was July 29th, 2000 in Malibu. Mm-hmm. And... So I was sitting in my office in Encino. It was about two weeks before the wedding was actually going to take place, and I was listening to the radio. I think probably KLOS, and because I used to listen to that. And um, and I hear on the radio that you know there's rumor that Brad Pitt and you know Jennifer Aniston are getting married in Malibu on July 29th. The tents are going up, and I literally just sat there in my office and like 
What? Like the flood of emotions came forward. I laughed. I cried. I freaked out. I, I was like, oh my gosh. I'm like, what? what? You know, like, right. and it was just like this crazy, like, I can't explain it, flood of emotions. And I was like, you're kidding me. And uh, cool. at that point, I still hadn't signed confidentiality agreements or any of that stuff, which comes along with this stuff where you can't really talk about it or tell or, uh, you know, but of course I still knew the severity of, you know, so of course I told my friends, you know, and, um, and they just, you know, announced it on the radio. So it wasn't like I was spilling the beans, but, uh, I'm glad that I had the two weeks to process it. sort of a, yeah. process that, you know, and, and I just told myself, I'm like, look, Robert, this is what you do every weekend. You know, they obviously hired you because they like what you do and, you know, go do what you do. And so I did get to meet them the Thursday before their wedding. You know, I went up to their home and I met with them. Um, and they were, of course, very gracious. You know, I'd get into the house and Brad Pitt's like, can I get you anything to drink? You know, water, Coke. And I was like, yeah, I'll have a Coke. And, you know, I was just laughing because I have Brad Pitt, you know, yeah. waiting on me, getting me a Coke from right. his refrigerator. <laughs> it was just, you know, one of those fun That's moments cool. in life. And, um, so, we, you know, we got along great. The rehearsal and the rehearsal uh, or walkthrough and all that stuff were the next day at the house. So I went on Friday and I photographed that. And it was, you know, it's good for me to be around them and to photograph them. And, you know, even for me to see that, you know, it's okay for me to allow them in their in their space. And, uh, and then I shot the wedding, of course, on Saturday. But the one thing I think, you know, people always that I've learned from doing, you know, we'll talk about the other ones, the other celebrities that I've done and, and shooting celebrities is the bottom line is, they're just people like you and I are, and they want all the same things that any normal wedding couple wants. They want beautiful pictures. They want right. to remember their wedding. They they want to have a good time, and they want you to capture those moments. Sure. Uh, there just happens to be a lot of other, you know, activity going on around the wedding, you know, depending on, you know, how big they are. But, you know, with the paparazzi and the security and the helicopters and the privacy and, you know, all that stuff. So much more stress on them. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, it limits me in some cases. Uh, where I can't shoot in places that I want to shoot in because there's the threat of, you know, paparazzi getting a photo, et cetera. Right. So going forward, the next really big wedding, and, you know, of course I shot that with Brad and Jen, and I thought, all right, this was a fluke. I'm never going to do another wedding this big again in my life. And then in 2006, uh, I shot the wedding of Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. I got that wedding much the same way as Brad and Jen. I submitted my work kind of not knowing who the client was. But, of course, in 2006, you know, the publicist, called and uh, <clears throat> through a company called Bridal Bar that I'm a part of in Los Angeles. And uh, I had my portfolio there and they called Bridal Bar and they said, we're looking for uh, a celebrity, we're looking for a photographer for A-list celebrity wedding, preferably with A-list experience. So uh, she submitted my work along with someone else in the Bridal Bar. And they too were like looking at, you know, in different areas and aspects and getting people to submit their portfolios. And I got chosen. And uh, again, when I went to meet Tom and Katie a couple of weeks before we went to Italy, um, you know, Tom came into the room holding Suri. Suri was, you know, just a baby at the time. And, um, and you know, he was very excited and happy to meet me. And he's like, yes. Robert, he's like, when I saw your book, I was like, that's, that's my guy. That's my guy. I knew wow. right away. And, what a compliment. You know, like, and, yeah, and Tom Cruise, like, really excited. And, you know, I was like, yeah, my nature is to be very shy. And so here's my first encounter with Tom Cruise and he's, you know, excited and that, you know, it's like, you know, I've learned to say thank you. I'm like, thank you, you know, thank you. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I had a nice, you know, talk with them and got to meet them. And then the next time, of course, I saw them was in Italy. Um, 
And then I've done, I mean, various other people over the years. I mean, I've done personal work, not weddings, but for Jim Carrey and Christina Aguilera, like birthday parties and things like that. Nice. Um, I did the wedding of Anastasia. She's a fairly popular singer, not in the States, but she's sold about 40 million albums worldwide, and she's very oh. popular in Europe. Um, so, Robert, you travel all the, over the world, basically. Yeah, I have. I've, you know especially for stuff like that. Even for normal clients, I just got back from New York. I did a wedding uh, New Year's Eve in New York um, for a really great client. And probably in my uh, 22 years of shooting weddings, like they were like the most appreciative, gracious, amazing people. Um, Excuse me, I did read on your Facebook page you were eating Fruit Loops at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you want to elaborate? <laughs> Here, I'll sum up the wedding for the listeners. Uh, this is how awesome this couple was. On New Year's Eve at 5.30 in the morning, mm-hmm. I was eating Fruit Loops. The groom gave me a foot massage. Oh, my God. And there was a New York City cop in the room that was just, it was kind of a very wild, like, one of those, like, you just had to be there experiences. Cool. But, but just the sweetest, sweetest couple. Mm. Um, they've already emailed me from their honeymoon, and they're in the Maldives. And it's like, Robert, we miss you already. That is so amazing. <laughs> Yeah, they just. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm very fortunate. And I think I attract really great people, but these people like almost put the icing on the cake. I think so. They're just really cool. Well, you know, Robert, I met you, and just from talking to you, you're very unpretentious, and I think that's what definitely makes people want to hire you and work with you and get to know you. And for a couple to email you on their honeymoon, that says a lot. Yeah, I know. I was very touched. To their, nice. I mean, they're just very sweet, and it really, you know, like. We talk about, you know, everybody like wanting to be a good person and I, you know, try to be and do all these things. I mean, they like almost like set the bar for me to like, all right, I could be even more appreciative and more compassionate and more gracious. Like these people make me want to be better just because of how they are, you know, like to say thank you more and to appreciate people even more because it was just and it wasn't just me. Like I, I saw them like I had a couple assistants and even my assistants, you know, whenever they'd pass you at the wedding on that night, like, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. And I saw them doing it to, wow. you know, other vendors as well. It wasn't just me. And it's just, just them. You work with some great people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things you said earlier was, you didn't talk about initially having a mentor. You said, well, I was talking to myself and I kind of figured out you have an incredible strength, you know, that not everyone has. And that sounds like that really helped guide you through this whole journey? Well, I think, you know, of course, I, I have a half-brother, but uh, my father remarried uh, shortly after my mother died, and then he was married to my stepmother for a couple years, and then uh, they split up, and so I was never really raised with him. So basically, I kind of see myself as an only child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess, you know, some of it comes from that, because, of course, as an only child, you know, you have to take care of yourself, entertain yourself. Right. Right. And that actually can be a hindrance in life as well, in that, you know, especially with relationships and things. I've really had to learn to consider other people in my life, you know, especially uh, people you love. Yes. And so that's been, you know, a, a growing process. I mean, I'm far from perfect. and uh, But I think also, you know, again, you know, not that I want to harp on that, but going back to Buddhism, it's really just, you know, very, it's very instilled a lot of that, you know, self-confidence. And, and I've learned that, you know, no matter what I'm going through, I can turn the situation around by chanting Om Myoho Renge Kyo. You know, it's just, 
it's always been there. Sometimes it's it's difficult and it doesn't come as fast as I want it to, of course, you know, mm-hmm. especially when we're struggling. But um, I think the importance is, is consistency. You know, no matter what you do in life is consistency. Um, you know, I kind of feel like with, you know, people, especially when I talk to photographers, they ask me like, oh, you know, about my career. And I think this applies to anything in life, but I, but I kind of use this analogy and I say that, you know, as, as long as I keep taking steps forward, you know, I feel that the universe keeps placing stones in front of me in the path on which to walk. Nice. And if I stop walking forward, then the stones are going to stop being placed in front of me. So I think sometimes even when it's tough and it's hard and we're all struggling and, you know, especially in today's world, um, you know, we just have to keep moving forward. We can't give up. I mean, that's, I think, the number one thing I've learned in Buddhism is never give up. Never give up. You can't. You have to just keep going forward. It will get better, you know, but you can't just give up or, you know, it's just not going to happen. Right, right. You can't give up with anything. I mean, life is, as I said earlier in the show, it's a roller coaster ride, and there's so many yeah. ups and downs and a lot of downs, and, you know, you have to figure out, how to bring yourself up and pick yourself up each day and be happy we're here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, one of the best ways to do that, and it, it seems you know strange, but is really uh, making sure that you're taking care of somebody else besides yourself. You know, even if it's, you know, like I mentioned, like just that that couple taught me to, you know, want to be appreciative more, mm-hmm. you know, just saying thank you to someone, uh, appreciating them more, doing something for somebody else, you know, besides yourself. Yes, we have to take care of ourselves, but, and, and that's, I think our human instinct is, you know, to survive, to take care of number one. Yes. But I think when you really reach outside yourself, reach beyond yourself and have compassion for somebody else and really try to take care of someone else or something, whether it's, you know, involving yourself in some sort of charity activity doesn't mean you have to run the charity. You know, Mm -hmm. you could just be a person that picks somebody up and drives them someplace. And, you know, that that simple act of compassion and and helping someone else really opens up uh, doors in your own life. Well, it's like I was talking to my kids this morning, driving them to school, and I was talking about, they actually mentioned Brad Pitt, and I was talking about, I was interviewing you, and I was mentioning how all the wonderful things he has done, um, actually, you know, with Katrina victims, and he is very interested in architecture, and he helped build homes, right, in uh, New Orleans? Absolutely. Right. And I Absolutely. said, you know, it's what you do outside yourself. You're, you're not, when you're, when you're not, um, before you have kids, you're it's in yourself. You're selfish, sometimes as a negative, and when you go out and you help other people, that's the best thing to do. Yeah, I mean, uh, for I've uh, early on, and I've done a little bit recently, but not so much recently. But I participated in a charity called Wheels for Humanity, and mm-hmm. uh, basically they refurbish uh, wheelchairs, old wheelchairs, new wheelchairs, donated wheelchairs, and then distribute them to people in third world countries who cannot afford them. I mean, a new wheelchair is like two thousand dollars, and you know, a third world country that might be their annual income. And so there's so many people all over the world that don't have mobility. So this one man, David Richards, who started the charity, I forget exactly where he was, but he saw some, you know, young person pulling themselves across a busy street because they couldn't walk, and that's how the charity started. And so I've been on some distributions with them in Costa Rica, 
and you know to go down there and they don't just take a bunch of wheelchairs down. I mean now it's gotten to the point where they have physical therapists that travel with them and they seat people in the wheelchairs and get them set and they have to sort of uh, apply for it if you will like you have to know what their disability is and those things but anyway what's that going website? down there and, Wait, excuse me, and being that website again what would, your website the uh, website for that it's wheelsforhumanity.org. Okay. Uh, okay. It's, it's, uh, I could do a quick search for it. To no, make no, sure it's I okay. It. All right. That's the name of the charity. Um, and they're affiliated with, uh, Mar- Mar- was it March of Dimes? Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to find it. That's but, okay. um, anyway, um, send me an email and so I'll I, post it. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I, sh- shot a distribution in Costa Rica and I went down there and I watched them and they do it through, you know, like Elks Club and those type of organizations who find the people in the community who have the need. They figure out what their disabilities are and then and then they may have to wait sometimes a year or more to get a chair for that particular person based on what their disability is. But then once it gets down there, then they seat them in the chair. They make sure that they're comfortable. And it's amazing to just like watch these people's faces. It's the first time in their life, some of them adults, a lot of them children, that have the ability to actually move now. They, they're they not just crawling across the floor. I mean, we went to orphanages there where, you know, there's 15 kids just laying on the floor because they can't do anything else, and Ugh. there's these people that take care of them. And, I mean, to be in a third-world country in itself will really make you appreciate what we have here in the United States, even if you don't have a lot. You have, you have, have so much. thousands have so more much. Yes. than some of these people. And going to a third-world country, maybe you can never get there, but... I, I can just tell you seeing it, it's just like, wow, you know, Amazing. but it really opens your eyes. Like even, you know, even an act of compassion, it doesn't have to be that extreme, but you know, even if it's, you know, the old adage of helping an old lady across the street or something, it's basically, you know, expanding your heart and reaching your heart and giving a little piece of yourself to somebody else, you know, really make a difference in your own life. But it's amazing the feeling that you get from doing so. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, well, you said it out there, but my website is, is robertevans.com. Okay. Um, I am on Facebook, um, which is Facebook at Robert Evans Studios, but I'm almost full of my friends, so I do have a business page that you can like. Okay. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Robert Evans. Beautiful. And, you know, those are the basics. We cover the basics there. Well, thank you so much. It's been great, and I'm going to um, get this up on my blog, and I'll, I'll send you the link to this interview, and I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. My pleasure, Janine. Thank you for having me. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Take care. You've been listening to the Get the Funk Out show, and I want to thank Robert Evans. That was a great interview. And again, it'll be up on my blog in a little bit. I'll send a message out on Facebook. And my blog is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. And if you'd like to find out about being a guest on my show, it's very simple. Just send me an email to Janine. That's J-A-N-E-A-N-E. I'll do that again. I know it's a toughie. J-A-N-E-A-N-E at KUCI.org. Up next, Cure for the Blues with Sheldon Ablett. Have a great week.
Irvine. Irvine.